recording there. All right. So today we're going to talk about three things, since uh, we couldn't help ourselves. We're trying to cram uh, what we used to do in nine weeks into uh, four weeks. Uh, we're learning, learning this as we go. We're going to talk about discipleship and mission and leadership this morning at the table. Um, I'm going to talk briefly about discipleship. Spencer's going to talk a bit about mission. Matt's going to talk a bit about leadership. And in between all of those, we're going to have just a time for Q&R. So keep track of what uh, reflections or questions come up for you uh, as we do this. Uh, and I hope it'll be very generative. All right? So uh, discipleship at the table. How many of you guys are in a DNA group? OK, so a lot of you are in a DNA group. So this may be somewhat familiar to you, uh, depending on uh, how far into it you are. But um, the, the way that we think about discipleship uh, at the table is um, a little bit different than other churches that I've been involved in. So first of all, uh, a lot of the discipleship that I have seen in the church participated in, led, uh, focuses on these two things, words and works. What I mean by that is words has to do with knowledge. So when we think about discipleship, we think about learning new stuff. Right? We think about knowledge, we think about truth, we think about doctrine, we think about revelation. Uh, we think about right belief. What are the right things to believe? What, how, do, how do we align our beliefs with reality, with what's actually true? Um, this is completely great. You know, like Knowledge is better than ignorance. Knowledge is fine. Knowledge is good. Uh, a lot of people come to faith uh, when somebody just shares the gospel with them and they've never heard it before. Right? So the gospel being shared is knowledge, is a form of knowledge to understand what God has done in Christ and to believe that and to trust it. So Romans 10, 14, for example, Paul says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one uh, whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? So knowledge is a key part of our discipleship. How many of you guys have ever heard that um, quote? purportedly from St. Francis, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Number one, St. Francis never said that. <laughs> Number two, you do need words to preach the gospel. For it to be the gospel, yes, we should live out the gospel, we should embody the gospel, but for it to be the gospel, you need to preach. There needs to be spoken words. There has to be knowledge, right? That's a key part of what it means uh, for us to be people of the gospel. So thinking clearly and correctly about God is really important, right? Heresy results if we don't think clearly and correctly about God. That's pretty bad. Uh, ignorance results when we don't think clearly about God. That's really bad, right? Because it causes a lot of harm uh, when we don't think clearly about reality. So words are important. I'm not down on words. They're great. A lot of our discipleship is focused on words. Also, a lot of our discipleship is focused on works. What I mean by works is stuff like morality, uh, right behavior, uh, virtue, the right deeds, um, sometimes the power of the spirit, miracles, God working in the world and us participating in that. That's wonderful stuff. Justice, right? This is all important stuff. Um, I've heard lots of stories. I grew up in the charismatic church and I heard lots of stories of deliverance and goodness coming when, when God acted in someone's life. Um, the role of works uh, in the world is really important. Um, and this, you know, is scriptural as well, right? Uh, those who do evil will not inherit the kingdom of God. We read this in a lot of different scriptures. Uh, that, that helps us see, not that we're earning our salvation by doing good, but that the kingdom of God uh, doesn't, doesn't align with folks who do evil. And so there has to be some repentance before we can actually participate in God's life. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. 
uh, Jesus spends the whole, it's about a sixth of the sermon, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, he spends that telling people to actually just put into practice what he just said. So it's no, it's no further teaching. He just actually is telling people, listen, you have to do, you have to put this into practice or it is of no use to you, right? So works are really important as well. Uh, when, we, when we neglect works, we get injustice. And that's really bad. We don't want that, right? When we neglect works, we get hypocrisy. And that's really bad. We don't want that, right? So words and works are important. Yeah? Most of the discipleship that I've participated in, hitherto, heretofore, uh, has focused, though, exclusively on words and works. So how do we learn more stuff, and how do we do better stuff? Those are important things, but they're insufficient. So this is, this is a key part of discipleship at the table, is the assertion that this is important and good and vital, yet insufficient for actually how we grow in Christ. It's insufficient. These three things in, in and of themselves are insufficient to bring about deep transformations of our minds and our actions. So the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount are an example of this, right? Jesus spends a lot of time saying, hey, you're doing all the right outward actions, but here, here's a way of looking at this so that you realize, oh, there's something else deeply wrong, right? Oh, you, you think it's okay because you just haven't committed actual adultery with a woman. And he's speaking to these men and saying, no, that, like, there's stuff going on in your heart and stuff going on in your lives that, that completely negates that, right? So there's something deeper that's needed if our discipleship is going to be in the way of Jesus. So the, the Pharisees, they had the right beliefs at the time, right? They were the orthodox believers, so to speak, at the time. They kept the law scrupulously, the parts they wanted to anyway. Um, but Jesus critiques them more than any other group because they refuse to deal with the heart. They refused to deal with stuff that was going on. Their, their righteousness was skin deep. It was surface level. It was about believing the right things and doing the right things, um, which allowed them to hide mountains of wickedness inside, underneath. So we have to dive below the surface. If this is, if this is surface level, that's some water. How's that? Does that make sense? surface level. This is stuff that's easy to see. But for discipleship to be uh, transformative, we have to dive below the surface. It has to involve the transformation of our desires. So wants are what live down here. And discipleship has to involve the transformation of our desires in light of the desires of God. It's another way of saying the will of God. Uh, Jamie Smith says, you are what you love. You are what you desire. You are what you, the, what you want at the deepest part of your soul says more about you than what you believe in your head or what you do with your body, necessarily. What you want says more about you. Now, that, those, two, those things are all integrated, and there's more we could say about that. But a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is helping people uh, see that knowing the right things and performing the righteous right actions were not enough to be at home in God's kingdom. So in each illustration, Jesus was helping people dive below the surface and pay attention to and reckon with. What do you actually want, though? Because unless we can talk about this and reckon with this and deal with this and invite God into this, we're not actually, our lives aren't actually being transformed. Now, it's really hard to deal with desire for three reasons. Most of us have a, something that we already do with our wants. Some of us kill it. Right? So some of us grew up, you see that's 
There we go, kill. So some of us kill our desires. Um, our desires are selfish is the message we got. You should not have them or express them because they might be idols leading you away from God's will. Idol, so what do we do with it? Kill it. Kill your desire. Suppress it. It's bad. Others of us, sometimes in reaction to that, <laughs> uh, adopt a different approach. Fulfill it. So let's, let's fulfill our desires. Our desires are good. Uh, what, what we have in our hearts, uh, we should trust. We should just automatically trust those things. Your desires are always good. You should trust them unreservedly because they will unfailingly lead you into life. It's not quite fair, but a lot of Disney movies have this message. Again, it's not quite fair to Disney. There's some great movies. I really like a lot of them. But oftentimes the assumption is whatever you have in your heart is good. You should trust it. Go for it. That's way better than whatever's out here that's oppressing you or suppressing you, right? So again, there's some truth in that, but that's oftentimes another one of our strategies here. I think the third strategy that a lot of us have to deal with our desires is to ignore. I couldn't make this rhyme with kill or fulfill. Maybe, maybe we can come up with an idea, but um, we ignore our desires. And so a lot of us ha have learned in, in an effort to sort of like control our lives and to control our uh, emotions, to control ourselves, we ignore our desires, we don't pay attention to them, and we become rigid. And a lot of us, a lot of those people actually don't think they have desires or feelings. They're like, well, yeah, I just don't really, that, that's just not part of my experience. But oftentimes what's happened is that we've suppressed those things or just set them aside and ignored them, and they always end up coming out sideways. So, um, but God wants us to, in our discipleship, discern. I'll write that in black, just to make a contrast here. What we're doing in discipleship is discerning our desires. We discern our desires, uh, so, and we have to just start with what we actually want. So we start with what we actually want rather than focusing on what we should want. And a transformation of our desire happens as, as lies are revealed in terms of when we start learning what it is I actually want, we start to learn, well, why do I want that? What am I hoping is going to come from that? And is that true? Will that come from that? Or... Is God offering me something better here, right? Is the gospel of grace offering me something better? Uh, there's a lot we can say about those desires and what we're really looking for in our lives. Um, but we've got to move on. So, um, so we discern our desires. And again, because words and works and wants, they're all fine. They're all part of being human. Um, and, you know, knowledge is better than ignorance. Right behavior is better than bad behavior. Um, but discerning our desires helps us to integrate all three of these things into a life of discipleship. So we end up kind of into integrating our knowledge and our behavior into the transformation of our desire. And this is what we do in our DNA groups. So again, might be familiar to some of you. Um, but we practice awareness of what we want. We practice alignment of our desires in the will of God. And then we practice action together. So awareness, alignment, and action is kind of the overall thing that we're doing all the time with our desires. How do we act on what we, what we have heard from God? And then, you know, and that usually then it becomes a circle because that opens up more awareness. So our action, our actions of trust in God open up more awareness. We go round and round. So that's discipleship at the table. That's what we do in our DNA groups. I'm going to pause the recording. All right, so I'll be sharing just a bit about mission at the table. I think that all three of these things really are intertwined. I think that a lot of what we learn in discipleship 
is like funding and imagination for it like introduces a logic for how we approach most of what we're doing at the table including mission and leadership and so i'm hoping that a lot of this cool work that ben did here will help to like undergird the work and discussion that we're going to have around mission uh actually felt a little bit bad because I could tell Ben was trying to like stay out of my area over here. <laughs> I don't have any cool drawings that I've planned. I may write a couple of words, but I think we should be good on space. Um, I think when most of us think of mission, oftentimes we've been conditioned to think of specific uh, service projects, some type of evangelism or outreach, social justice, uh, inviting other people to church, specifically around Christmas or Easter maybe. Uh, or going overseas, like out there, short-term missions where we actually travel and we're gone, or long-term mission trips. But mission is not the same thing as just church growth. We're not just trying to make this thing bigger. That is not how we define our mission here at the table. In fact, that is kind of a, a circular logic. It's basically saying, come be a part of this organization whose vision is to become a bigger organization that more people can be a part of. So this is not that. Mission is not the one true pyramid scheme or the great Ponzi scheme in the sky. But our mission is connected to God's mission. God's mission is to fill the world with his presence and to become one with humanity, to become all in all in creation. And so we come into union with him in our baptism. We're remembered as the body of Christ when we come together around his table on Sunday mornings. And then we are simultaneously commissioned and sent out each Sunday as we come in, we receive, we're remembered as the body of Christ, and then we're sent out as ambassadors of Christ. So mission is proclaiming and embodying the good news that Jesus is Lord. That's why the fundamental vision of the table is for us to encounter, embody, and extend the presence of Christ in our world. Uh, in Matthew 28, it's the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. So this is like, this is our sentness that we're sent out into every Sunday as we leave church. But it's a holistic mission. Just like whenever we were talking about the tradition of Anglicanism and the beauty of the prayer book and how it became integrated into real life and not just this high, high scale thing that was in a different language that we couldn't understand. The same thing is true of our mission. It's something that functions at home with our kids and our families, in our workplaces, the way that we treat one another as we're walking into service on Sundays. It's not just something that's out there. It's not just some special program. Uh, actually, when I lived in Tulsa, I was a part of a, like a, I went to Bible school, but then I was a part of this internship that occupied the rest of my time outside of school. And it was kind of like for everybody that thought that they were really hardcore about ministry. So we did ministry all the time. And whenever we had like a blank space on our schedule, like we weren't giving food away or doing homeless outreach or something like that, we would just do what we called witnessing, which would basically be like, let's go to Walmart and find people to talk to about Jesus and try to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. Or we would go to random apartment complexes and go around knocking on doors. So if any of you guys were in Tulsa in 2008 or 2009, we may have met each other in a really odd way, but if that is you, it worked out. Because look, we're all here at church. It's great. So this is not that. And even like in hindsight, looking back at that, the idea that that was called witnessing is so, such a weird name for something that's so not, not a normal part of life. Like witnessing is when you 
see something and you point to it, you know, you like recall this event that's happening, right? And so it doesn't feel like it's really tethered directly to going and knocking on a random person's door, trying to like manufacture a relationship and conversation. But witnessing in reality is like, as you go on your normal life, you bear witness to the things that are happening inside of you and the work that God is doing in your life and in your community life together. And you can invite other people into that. It's not all about growth, but it's about just integrating into normal life. So it's connected to discipleship and our life together here as a church. So in essence, discipleship and evangelism are really the same thing. We're discerning the bad news. We're proclaiming good news or gospeling, which is one of our practices here. It's an invitation to respond to. And that goes back also to the idea of whose mission it is that we're joining in. It's not the mission of the table. It's not our mission for the kingdom of God, but it's God's mission. He's the first actor. He's the one that's already present and at work in each of these situations. So a lot of mission is something that we're discerning our way into. We're not trying to come up with a business idea that would blow everybody away and then just slap the name tag of mission on it. But we're trying to bear witness to what's happening around us, see where a need is, see where there's some energy around it. A good example actually of an idea that just recently came out of our community and that had nothing to do with Matt, Ben or I or Nancy is the library of things. Uh, Ryan Donahoe just felt this coming up to him and as he continued talking to folks, including leadership, but also just people in the church, it became apparent that this was something that the spirit was kind of birthing in our midst, an opportunity for us to live into a different way of being the body of Christ together, hopefully together at first and then also with our neighbors around us. So part of the way that we discern mission is we look for what we call a person of peace or people of peace. This comes from Luke 10, which is where Jesus sent out the 70, two by two, to go and minister. And he gave them instructions to, to look for folks that would welcome you, stay in their houses, people that would provide for you, eating and drinking, whatever they would provide for you, and people that would receive from you. So just as an example of what like a person of peace would be, when we first started meeting here at Spirit of Joy, we were invited actually to come in and they moved their service time to a different time so that we could meet on Sunday mornings. And so if you had asked six years ago if we would be meeting in this area of Indianapolis, I don't think anybody could have predicted it. Neither Matt, Ben, or I live around here. But we kind of discerned that the direction of the mission that God was calling us into was happening around this area, this central location. Not out of strategy or game planning, um, but because somebody invited us. And... It was a very unique invitation. So we, that was one of the ways that we discerned that God was present at work here in this place. So a couple of thoughts that we can kind of take away for ourselves here is to find a person of peace, we must actually be persons of peace. And the way that we do that is through, I'm going to write a couple of words up here. Surrendered sentness. Surrendered sentness, which I think you can tell the shape of what we're talking about here is like it's a non-colonial move. We're not coming and like planting a flag in the ground and saying this is we're claiming this turf for Jesus. But we are actually sent out into mission. It's part of our discipleship, part of our normal lives. And it's something that we're surrendering to. 
because it's not just our best ideas, but it's God's mission. It's not something that we control or we make up and muster to make happen. We go in dependence and complete reliance on God, connected to him and surrendered to him so that we can discern the evidence of where he is already at work in our lives, in our community life, and in our city around us, in our context. This reminds me of our class with Michael Gonzalez at the beginning of Lent last year, Beyond Whiteness, where he was riffing on Willie James Jennings. And we talked about the idea that we are actually all guests. We have been grafted into a story that's not our own. And so if we fundamentally understand that this story of Christianity that we're in is not like our thing that we own and possess and we get to give away like very generous owners of this blessing, it fundamentally shifts our posture, the way that we inhabit space. The word that Michael Gonzalez introduced there to us was guesting. So even when we host here on Sundays, this is not our space. I mean, literally, it's not our space, but like the church, the table is not ours. It's God's church. And so the way that we share that with other people is not with a sense of ownership or power, but like this understanding of over or like, oh, I get it. So like if you play your cards right, maybe you can like get in here and start to understand and like climb the ladder. But we are guesting other people into the kingdom of God. And so surrendered sentness is fundamental to that. Another part of uh, the way that we see mission here is through mutual submission, which is a word that you probably will hear a lot. And it's something that we kind of know, we may have an idea of what it means, but it's so interesting because it can take on a different shape in every different conversation that we have. So the scriptural basis for this is going back to Luke 10, um, excuse me, sorry, where Jesus says, there's lambs among wolves carrying no purse. So go in submission to the one that you seek to reach. So we're going again in that posture of not over. It's not that we, uh, we know something. It's not a colonial move where we are the ones coming with the knowledge and the power and the wisdom and we're just going to distribute it. But we are actually coming and submitting to the people that we seek to serve. We're, and we can't do that in our community around us if we can't start by doing that here in our midst. So we don't go as those who have what others need, but we go as those who need. And this submission to others is so we can receive from them and they can receive from us, which is what a real relationship is. And it's so interesting to think that that doesn't come naturally to us. Like, I think we all have assumptions about a relationship, but then when we look at our actual, the way that our objective actions play out, a lot of times it's like, oh, I'd actually rather you just rely on me. I don't want to rely on you or vice versa. Another core part of our mission is that it's responsive to grace. Because we are accustomed to noticing God's grace in our lives and by joining and participating in it for our own discipleship, we actually are able to go and do that for others as well. So this is part of this is like a different understanding of witnessing. We're not going out with four tenets of the faith, but we're actually just bearing witness to the work that's going on in our hearts and our minds and in our midst and inviting others to participate in that. We're responding to God's action, God's work in our midst. And then the last fundamental value of our, our mission or key defining aspect is that we listen and we see as Jesus would.
Steve Covey said that most people do not listen with the intent to understand, but they listen with the intent to reply. But we're actually trying to be good listeners. That's one of our practices here at the table is that we listen to people, actually to seek to understand what they're naming about their internal world or their external reality, not just because we've got this gift that we want to give them, so we're just like trying to speed through whatever they're telling us so we can get to that. When we find a person of peace and they welcome us, we receive not just food and shelter, but we receive their story. We receive their identity, who they are, their history that they bring with them. This way of understanding mission reminds me of an analogy that I heard from Rick Warren, actually. He was talking about church planting, but I think it's fitting for mission. Uh, It's a lot like surfing. Mission is a lot like surfing. Like, you can't actually drum up a move of God. You can't make a wave appear out of thin air. Uh, But you also have to prepare yourself, right? You're never going to surf if you don't suit up ever or if you don't have a board. But just having those things are not enough to actually make it happen. You have to have the gear. You have to prepare. You have to paddle out. But then the way that we're discerning mission here at the table is that we're watching the horizon for whenever a wave will start to swell and roll in. And what I like about this also is that Every time you see a wave come in, you're not just going to nail it. Like sometimes you're going to fall off your board, right? And you've got to try again. And so there's not this pressure to get it right every time. There's going to continue to be a constant flow of waves coming in. God's action is immutable in the universe. His, it's his mission of reconciling all things to himself, of him becoming all in all. But the way that we join in that work is that we paddle out, that we look to the horizon, we look in our lives, in our context, in the lives of our families, and in our internal, internal world, and we discern what is happening. We try to join in that work. And we do that together. And it gets messy sometimes. But it's fun. All right. Well. Perf. Uh, one thing I just want to punctuate about mission is that I think a lot of my intuitions and in conversation with Ben and Spencer and our vestry and staff and others, a lot of my intuitions come from a, um, what I would call a colonial imagination. I know how to show up with power and strength to give and then also to sort of take. Does that make sense? There's, a, there's an impulse of kind of um, going with strength, with power, with resources and, and assuming that I know what you need and what I have is superior to you and the best thing you can do is become like me. Right Now, that's baked into our Western philosophical culture, and it's a legacy. I think there's a legacy even on the ground we're sitting on. We're sitting on this ground because that's our legacy. That I am learning to trust less. There's, there's some operational intelligence about going with Jesus in a way that doesn't um, erase and absorb and, um, and conquer, but in a way that goes as a guest to join. And I think that I don't trust my missional instincts on that. Just owning that with you. I'm having to learn that. One of the words you'll hear us use to describe that is decolonizing. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in preschool. So I just want to say that if that feels scary to you or you don't quite understand it, or maybe you have 
experienced this because of your, the way God's made you and you have things to offer us, great. But I just want to sort of say that. Is that all right? Well, leadership at the table. Um, we, we have, since we're Anglican, we have a fairly, uh, fairly organized hierarchy. Right? There's a bishop that this is actually, I know Spencer said this is Christ's church, but, you know, according to Anglican polity, it's the bishop's church. We serve at the bishop's pleasure. And oh, is he pleased. <laughs> we serve at the bishop's pleasure here. Um, it's his church. And, and then the bishop is a part of College of Bishops. That's kind of a, a collegial, all kind of leading together. So there's, unlike a pope who sort of, you know, is sort of the first among equals, but really the emphasis is on first. Does that make sense? Uh, we have an archbishop that sort of kind of gathers the bishop's voice and speaks on behalf of the voice of the bishops, but doesn't function like a pope. That makes sense. But within this very hierarchical structure that has a, a bishop and then priests and then a deacon and then a vestry, we are seeking to learn how to organize our bodies and our authority with not a, not a top-down structure, which is basically what a normal Anglican polity is. We're kind of functioning in that, but we're, bump, we're trying to bump up against that a bit, resist it a bit. Not a flat culture, right? So, hey, uh, our lease is up, and we have a building in Fishers and a building in uh, Bates Hendricks. Show of hands, who wants to go to Fishers? Show of hands, who wants to go to Bates Hendricks? Well, majority wins. Like, that's maybe a congregational approach, a caricatured congregational approach. That's also not what we're doing. But what we call, what we're trying to do is we're trying to lead in a center-out way. So not top-down, not flat, but what we're trying to call center-out, which, which means that um, there, there is a, there is a um, we have been given a, a, a stewardship of grace, Ben and Spencer and I. Bishop has laid hands on us, Nancy. The bishop has laid hands on us and said, you are vested with Christ's authority to lead, to bear authority here. And we're trying to bear that authority, not... Uh, in, different, in a different way. So let me just give a few artifacts of what this different way looks like and why it matters to us. Um, we're, trying to, we're learning to lead uh, with the power of love, not control. So we actually want to recover the virtue that love is the most important thing about the Christian life. Without, without love, we can do amazing things and teach amazing things. And at best, it's rubbish. Right? Doesn't matter how impressive we are. Doesn't matter how much we get done. If love is not at the center of it and like all around it, it's just empty and worthless. And as we know, hurtful. So we're learning to lead in love. Learning to invest and empower people. This is the center out. We're trying to get as many people into the center as possible. This is Ephesians 4. 
Right? Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Then, then you will be built up, not tossed to and fro by winds of human doctrine and crazy conspiracy theories, but you will grow up into him who is the head, who fills everything in every way. So the authority that we have, whoever has authority here, it's to come underneath and invest and then lift up. Not to come over and control. Does that make sense? I'm trying to use a sort of a visual to help us understand. So love invests, it doesn't extract. Love empowers, it doesn't use. Love supports. So then uh, another metaphor I want to use is that we're not, we're not white-knuckling this thing. Like, leadership isn't like holding tight, firm grip. It's also not hands-off. But we're learning to hold on with an open hand. If you've ever done ballroom dancing, this is how you hold on to your partner. You have to hold firmly, but you can't grip it, or else the partner can't move you. So you have to hold on with sort of an open hand, so that you're, you're connected, you're joined, you're, you're, you're not passive, you're active, but you're also pliable and agile and movable. So we're, we're, attempting, we're attempting to lead in that way. I mean, just a couple artifacts and then I'll open up for questions. Um, we, I, I'm, I'm just shocked that, you know, Ephesians 3 says uh, the church, the church is the wisdom of God hidden for eternity that now is declaring to the cosmos God's brilliance. This, this, this is a church that Jesus gives the spirit to. And, you know, ben, or Spencer already quoted Matthew 28, but the most incredible thing about that text for me is that Jesus is, can't wait to give the spirit, investing and empowering other people to do more, more than I did, he says. And he gives it to people who are doubting. He gives a spirit to people who are worshiping, but some doubted. <laughs> He's just like, look, this isn't like Shang- this isn't Shangri-La here. This isn't the best in the bride. We've got some people that don't quite get it. And Jesus is like, I trust you too. I trust you too. So we want to bear that authority of Christ here. I don't want to trust you less than Christ does. Think about it that way. And, and my job as a leader is to learn how to entrust you in, in, in areas and places that are beneficial to you. Right? So I don't leave a 13-year-old in charge of my house for a week and leave. Because that's not great for my 13-year-old. But I will let him watch Home Alone with his sister last night while we have dinner with friends. And that's, you know... Not to be paternalistic, but that's kind of the idea. Christ trusts us. Christ trusts you. He's given you the spirit. And I'm, as a leader, I'm looking for ways to, like, empower you to God, to do, to be. So then the circle, the, the center out, the circle, we want to get as big as you can. I don't know. We'll ordain anything around here. <laughs> No, we want to get as big as we can. Uh, uh, we, our preaching team is eight people. Half the people who preach don't have don't have credentials, right? 
and on and on and on. So, thoughts, questions, comments about that. There's other things I could say, and maybe I won't, but I want to just give some space here. Spencer. A reflection. So, I, I had been, before coming to the day, 